Okay, it's 3650, Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Thursday, September 23rd, 2010, Fat and Carbohydrate Utilization During Exercise. Hey, vote Tony Price, Homecoming King this year, September 27th, 9 a.m. through September 30th, 5 p.m. Vote Sam Chukuma, C-H-U-K-W-U-M-A, <laughs> for Mr. Senior, September 27th, 9 a.m. through September 30th, 5 p.m. Let's go. Shameless plug completed. That's, hey, if that's all it takes. All right. Um, after class last time, uh, somebody asked a question or made a point, which is a, a very good point about protein. Because I made a good uh, a big deal in class about how you probably don't need protein supplements and I'll stick I'll stay by that um, you even people who are exercising fairly intensely and have a higher protein need in their daily uh, uh, caloric and daily protein intake needs if they plan appropriately can probably fairly easily meet that through uh, eating uh, regular food so you don't need to go to GNC and buy, you know, uh, protein supplements. Um, there is one time frame or one period where either supplementing or using food, paying attention to a certain type of protein and a certain amount of protein might be uh, beneficial. And so I've added this slide to the protein set, which I'll... Uh, uh, <laughs> I've added this slide to the protein set, which I'll upload, so it'll be there this afternoon. But basically what happens is, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about carbohydrate, there's a window of time after you finish exercise, particularly a fairly rigorous either workout or competition. Uh, I mentioned last time, exercise sort of mimics what other type of metabolic state? Starvation. Starvation. So exercise puts you in kind of a catabolic or breakdown state. And if an athlete is training pretty hard every day, sometimes multiple times per day, you want to get out of that catabolic state and more back into an anabolic state for recovery and adaptation as quickly as possible. We'll talk about some real specific uh, recommendations with carbohydrates, but there are some growing, uh, there's some growing information and research about the necessity to do that with protein as well. I shouldn't say the necessity, but the, the uh, efficacy of doing that with protein. So there's this window that's about two hours or so in time after exercise that if you supplement some specific protein, it seems to help change you from bro protein breakdown back to protein synthesis more quickly, okay? The body will do this normally anyway in recovery, but if you feed it appropriately, it'll make this reversal a little more quickly. Okay? So the time frame is anywhere from right after exercise. <laughs> Bless you. The time frame is anywhere from immediately when exercise finishes out into about two hours or so. Okay? Um, the amount is about 10 to 20 grams of protein. Unless you're a really, really large person, it doesn't seem that more than 20 grams of protein helps. 
Okay, so somewhere in that 10 to 20 grams of protein. And it does appear that certain types of proteins uh, seem to help better than others. Okay, high, high, what are often referred to as high quality proteins that have a high proportion of those um, essential or what are more currently called indispensable amino acids. Okay, some good examples would be egg whites, uh, whey or casein protein or soy. Okay, so, uh, and it does seem that some of them like uh, uh, whey and soy tend to be digested more quickly. The amino acids get into the bloodstream a little more quickly. So it's kind of the protein version of high glycemic carbohydrates. Um, so that seems to happen a little more quickly. Now, so then you got this window after hard exercise that you probably want to get some protein in you, 10 to 20 grams of protein. So how do you do that? Well, you can do it with supplements by taking some kind of supplement. You know, you can get certain recovery beverages, um, you know, a beverage that you mix up that has whey protein in it or whatever. Or you could meet it relatively simply by either eating egg whites or drinking milk as an example. So to get about 10 uh, grams of protein, you can drink about 10 ounces of milk and get both the whey and the casein protein uh, by drinking something you can get at the grocery store for three bucks a gallon, okay? Instead of going to the GNC and getting it, you know, much more expensively in a, in a manufactured supplement. The idea of supplementation is that it's in powder form, and so therefore it's easier to absorb through the bloodstream. And for those, those two hours that, that, that window, will the, the egg whites and the milk um, absorb through the bloodstream just as quickly? Oh yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea with the, the powdered version, it, it, in reality, it's probably more of a convenience. Um, they, it will take that whey protein that you find in milk and puts it in a more purified form, but then you wind up mixing it with you know, water or whatever to consume it anyway. So why not just consume, you know, my point would be, and, and I, you know, supplements are fine and they're not harmful, but I like to be practical and suggest to people ways that you can accomplish the same thing without spending the money for the supplement when there's, no, there's not really good evidence that the supplement works any better than what you can get in food. Now there are some conditions and situations, we'll talk about that with carbohydrates, as an example where the amount of carbohydrate that you may have to eat over the course of the day is so large that you may want to get it in a more concentrated purified form like a supplement and that, you know that's fine it's that's okay but I just want people to understand you can you can accomplish the same thing by drinking a big glass of milk okay um, I hear a lot about people talking with soy protein about mm -hmm. how it can possibly raise your like estrogen production in mm -hmm. is there any truth to that uh, you gotta eat a large 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 amount of it okay. so are vegetarians more worried about that not necessarily. You know, it depends depends on how much soy they eat. Is that is that a large amount at one time or a large amount over the process Both. of Both. Yeah. And th there are some concerns about that related to particularly for women that are that may be at high risk for breast cancer as an example or other cancers that are related to uh uh high estrogen levels, you know, about moderating the amount of soy products in their diet. Um but for the for the uh, people who don't have that concern, the typical amount of soy that might be included in a diet is not going to be a problem. 
there's actually more concern about supplementing with other things. When we get to the muscle section, we'll talk about um, uh, 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 andro, androstenedione, and there's clear evidence that where people try to supplement with that in an attempt to enhance their body's testosterone levels, and in fact what happens is it's erotomized into, into estradiol, so you actually wind up increasing the, the female uh, hormones instead of the male hormones. So it's, it's a, you know, we'll, we'll talk about a lot of manipulations of how you can manipulate different things to try to uh, improve physical performance. When you get around to manipulating the, the endocrine system, some very unexpected things can happen. So, uh, if you're lactose intolerant, then you you can you can you know get this protein. I'm just using milk as an example. Is it, is you, what you need still in like a, the lactose-free milk? Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. um, lactose is just the type of sugar, the carbohydrate that's found in milk. You know. So, uh, and then same thing with fat-free milk or low-fat milk. Basically, they're just taking fat out and not altering the protein content. So you're probably fine with the lactate or whatever the types of lactose-free milk. Yeah. So and that's and again that's just those that's just a, a, a an example of something that most people tolerate and can consume fairly easily. You know you could probably do just as well by um, you know eating other foods, uh, protein-containing foods as well. well. I had a question about the, the pre-digested proteins. What are they mm -hmm. actually advertising in the supplements if they both digest just the same? You are basically spending money for a company to do something and sell you something that your stomach will do for free. <laughs> okay? <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, you're, you're going to pre-digest something to send it through your digestive system. You know, uh, I... That's the thing with a lot of these products is they, they have some thread of truth or believability or reasonability to them, but in, in very few cases do you see that there's actually a clear benefit um, to those particular products over food. Okay, and and that that's a and we going back though you know if you back up to creatine supplements, can you get the amount of creatine that you need for loading through food? Yeah, but it's pretty tough because it's a huge huge amount. So in that case, supplementing with a supplement product probably makes some sense. But um, I, I in in some of these other cases, I'm I'm not exactly sure that. Even though it sounds reasonable, it probably doesn't. It's probably not necessary, and there's not good evidence or good science that shows that it's clearly better than just consuming food. Okay. Would you say that some supplementation seems like a lot of bodybuilders and people that work out five days a week? Do you believe that it can be a psychological addiction? They need to take these supplements and feel. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, no question. Um, and the thing you have to be, that people have to be careful of, and this is why, this is why hopefully one of the things you'll take away from a class like this is to not look at that advertisement in Muscle and Fitness Magazine or whatever and say, wow, this sounds like the greatest product ever, you know, um, and, and wow, research proves blah, 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 that this works. Well, we know the research in this 
type of instance doesn't prove anything. Okay, it, it provides us evidence, and you just when individuals say, "Well, it seems to work for me," my usual response is, "That's great." <laughs> you know, uh, but you it, when it's an individual anecdotal type of evidence, and also you know my current one that just cracks me up is the it's not a supplement, but it's it's Joe Montana. Uh, hawking the new the, the shoes, you know the you're you, you the shape ups or whatever, you know. I just you know, so you get the celebrity endorsement, you know that it that it works. Um, you you can't get around the fact that that's a, an isolated incident, like the guy falling out of the airplane that we talked about. Okay, you you know you can't you, you can't get around those isolated incidents or that anecdotal evidence. It and, and so I tell people, if it's a supplement or something that they can afford to buy, and if it's not harmful or not, not causing them adverse effects, and they think it makes them stronger or work out more or harder, recover better, you know, go on ahead and fill the coffers of the company that makes the stuff. You know, that's fine. But, yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt. There's a really interesting case study, and this was an endurance athlete instead of a um, uh, strength and power athlete. But they had gotten hooked on this idea they're supposed to, you know, consume a lot of carbohydrate, and so they started eating like power bars, and and yet their performance was suffering and this kind of thing. And so when the diet, the case study was a dietitian, sports dietitian came in and did a nutritional assessment, and this guy was eating like 20 power bars a day, <laughs> and and it became not only a convenience thing because he could put 20 bars in his gym bag, um, and so he always had food available to him. Um, uh, uh, but it became a psychological thing where, you know, I'm, this contains carbohydrate. I mean, and first of all, you know, if you guys eat in power bars, the guy must have had jaw muscles like this, you know, first of all, because those things are not easy to chew. Uh, and second of all, eating that much of that one thing was starting to displace other uh, nutritious foods from his diet. And so he was actually having a, uh, some issues. So uh, psychological issues related to supplementation, no doubt. Okay, all right. So that's that was backing up quickly to uh, protein, and I will get that new slide uploaded to the you learn this afternoon. Okay. All right. So when we finished class last time, we were talking about this interplay of fat and carbohydrate metabolism. Okay, you got these two important energy sources uh, that are stored right in muscle and that are stored in other places that we can use to fuel aerobic metabolism. Okay, carbohydrate and fat. There's some advantage to carbohydrate metabolism. There's some advantages to fat metabolism. Okay, and and one of the things that we started to explore was this idea that as we increase exercise intensity, as we increase activity and exercise intensity, we start to see this respiratory exchange ratio go up and we start to see the percentage of fuel that we get from carbohydrate go up and the percentage of fuel from fat that we get goes down. Okay, So as exercise intensity goes up, we burn more carbs and we burn less fat. So that's where we got to this notion or this idea of fat burning. 
Um, actually, let me. Okay, and so it looks like this graphically. This is exercise intensity going along like this. And so as we increase exercise intensity, the percent of energy that we get from carbohydrate goes up, and the percent of energy that we get from fat goes down. Okay? So as we increase our exercise intensity, we burn less fat. Right? So if people are interested in exercising to lose weight, and more specifically to, to lose body fat, then what I hear all the time is they need to burn fat. Okay. So at what exercise intensity would it make sense to exercise then if you want to burn the most fat? Yeah, on, on this graph, where is the highest amount of uh, fat being burned? Here, right? In fact, when is RER your highest? Or, uh, uh, that's a mistake. When is your RER the lowest? When was it at 0.75? At rest. So if you want to burn the most fat, the thing to do is go home and lay on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet! <laughs> the highest fat burning is when you're laying on the couch resting, right? And physiologically, that's correct. If you count percentage instead of absolute amount. Okay? I will give you a hundred percent of the money that is in that's in my pocket. I don't I don't have any money in my pocket, so that doesn't do you any good. Okay? When you're at rest, eighty-five percent of your energy expenditure is coming from burning fat. But what's your total energy expenditure when you're laying on the couch? Very low. So you're not really burning much in terms of total calories, right? You're burning the highest percentage of your calories from fat but it's not very many total calories because you're resting. All right, well, let's look at an example with exercise. And skip over those and go to here. Okay. Um, this is that cyclist we've seen some data from before, and we're going to have him exercise at four different exercise intensities. At 80 watts, at 150 watts, at 250 watts, and 300 watts. And we are going to look at the percentage of energy expenditure from fat and from carbohydrate. Okay? So, at 80 watts, okay, 80 watts, which is uh, a, a very, very light warm up for us, this individual, he's getting fi over half, 51% of his energy from fat and 49% from carbohydrate. But at a light warm up, He's already about 50-50. Okay? This is percentage of energy. When he goes to 150 watts, uh, fat percentage goes down, as we've talked about, and carbohydrate percentage goes up. So this is down to 48 and up to 52. When he goes to 250 watts, he's up to about 60-40. 60% 60 carbs, 40% fat. 
And when he goes up to 300 watts, which is probably a pretty good race pace for him, that's about 80% carbohydrate and about 20% fat. Okay? So the, these are uh, real numbers from having this guy do this. So it demonstrates exactly the, percent, the, the, the principle I was just talking about. As you increase exercise intensity, carbohydrate percentage goes up and fat percentage goes down. Okay, well let's look at a, a, a specific example of somebody doing a fixed amount of exercise. This is somebody doing 30 minutes of exercise at a lower fat burning intensity, 50% of VO2 max, and 70, uh, a higher intensity at 70% of VO2 max. So this would be similar to a 30 minute exercise portion of a, a group exercise class or getting on a cycle ergometer and riding for 30 minutes as an example. Okay, So at 50% VO2 max, this person had an RER that was about 0.85. That meant they were getting about 50% from carbs and about 50% from fat. This turns out to be about 73 kcals from carbohydrate and about 73 kcals from fat Okay, for a total energy expenditure of 146. When this person goes from 50% up to 70% for that same 30 minutes, okay, they're burning less fat, right? Because they've gone from 50% down to 40%. So they're burning less fat. They're burning less fat as a percentage. But it is a lower percentage of what? A bigger number. When you increase the energy expenditure for that 30 minutes, during that 30 minute period of time, you are expending many more calories. So we're taking a lower percentage, but of a bigger number. Okay? Carbohydrates going up to 60%, so now we're burning 124 kcals from carbs. Fat has gone down to 40%, but look at this. 40% of the larger total caloric expenditure results in 82 calories of fat being burned. So is this the fat burning intensity or is this? In which one are they actually burning more fat? Higher intensity. Okay, higher intensity. Now there is a point in exercise intensity where the percentage now has fallen so low with fat oxidation that you're not burning as many total uh, calories from fat. Okay, so that does happen. I'll show you that in just a second. But probably the overall point is it doesn't matter because for long-term weight and fat loss, it, does it really matter if the calories burned come from carbohydrate or fat or protein? Not long-term. What's, what's the key thing in terms of fat loss over a long period of time? What's the most important thing? Total calories expended particularly in relation to total calories taken in. Okay? Um, all right, here's that same athlete, except now what we're going to do is we're going to calculate his absolute fat and carbohydrate oxidation. Total number of calories from, not percentage, but total number of calories from fat and carbohydrate. Here's the carbs. So as we went from 80 to 150 to 250 to 300 watts, dramatically increased exercise intensity, we see, um, and this is kilocalories of energy from carbohydrate every minute goes up from 4 to 6 to almost 10 to 
over 16, almost 17. Okay? So total number of calories expended from carbohydrate goes up dramatically with this high exercise intensity. Okay? Now let's look at fat. Fat oxidation is at about 4 kcals a minute, goes up to about 5.5 kcals a minute at 150 watts. When we go to 250, it goes up again to about 6.5. And then what happens to fat oxidation after, once we go to 300 watts? It starts going down. Okay? As exercise intensity keeps going up, we've, we've reached some peak of our ability to oxidize fat or metabolize fat aerobically, and fat oxidation starts to fall off. Okay, why why would that happen? Why what? Okay, more steps. Okay, there's a there's more steps with the beta oxidation. There's more steps with trying to get that long fatty acid chain transported inside the mitochondria. Okay, what else? Uh, hormones probably don't affect fat oxidation so much at this point because at higher exercise intensities we've, we've probably got the hormonal status that we need to break down those fatty acids. What else? Are you referring to like Yeah, but there was something we talked about the other day and it was specifically related to how we, how we uh, determine whether or not it's fat or carbohydrate oxidation. Higher intensity, different muscle fibers, but also there's something chemically related to how we use this aerobic energy system to oxidize carbohydrates and oxidize fats. If we go back to our RER slides, if you remember, when we're doing, carbohyd we're doing carbohydrate, glucose, here's how, for a molecule of carbohydrate, here's how many oxygens we had to bring in, how many O2s we had to bring in. And so these O2s have to come in from the outside in order for us to metabolize this molecule. What's different about this molecule and the oxygen you have to bring in from the outside? Lots more, okay? So for any for the amount of this molecule, there's fewer oxygens that come along with it, so we've got to bring in more oxygen from the outside. Okay? And so how do we get that oxygen in from the outside to help with fat metabolism? You breathe it. You gotta breathe it in. You gotta diffuse it in. You gotta you know get it into the blood. You've got to circulate it around. You've got to get it down to those muscles. You've got to transport it from the blood into the muscle cell. And then you've got to get it into the mitochondria. Okay, so it takes for an equivalent amount of oxidation, it takes more oxygen to metabolize fat than it does carbohydrate. Okay, and so when you get to higher exercise intensities, it becomes more problematic to supply that amount of oxygen to sustain fat metabolism. And so instead, we, we default over to the energy source that we can metabolize more easily with less oxygen. Does that make sense? Okay. There's another important factor too, and that is when you get to these higher exercise intensities,
One of the things that we see is we see lactate levels in the blood going up and we see the muscle and the blood pH going down and that interferes with how are free fatty acids carried in the blood? Were they, were they free or were they carried by something? Carried by a plasma protein, usually albumin. Okay, When lactate levels in the blood get high and pH in the blood starts to get low or more acidic, it starts to interfere with the ability of albumin to bind free fatty acids. Okay, So now it becomes an issue of being able to get these fatty acids through the bloodstream to the muscle for metabolism. So, so the, 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 the bottom line here, fat metabolism is a terrific, uh, fat is a terrific fuel source for metabolism, but it is most effective at rest and at lower activity levels. As exercise intensity goes up, we eventually get to a point where we cannot oxidize fat fast enough fat metabolism will decline and we have to rely mostly on carbohydrate metabolism and that's the point that we see some somewhere in this range somewhere in here we see fat metabolism going down and therefore we've got to depend on carbohydrate metabolism okay that's why all of these different strategies and methods and things that we see to try to enhance fat metabolism for endurance exercise basically don't work. I mean, they work to a point, but only if your exercise intensity is very moderate. As soon as you accelerate to a race pace, you're in this realm over here, and things that you do to try to enhance fat metabolism really don't help much. Okay? So, is it safe to say that 70% of, I guess, maximal effort is the best? Around 70%, that's the best area That's a great question. Uh, it, it, it depends, and it's slightly different for different people, okay? Here's an example, um, and let's, just, let's take that to a, a real practical example. A friend of mine, and this was about five, six, seven, eight years ago, a friend of mine was approaching his 50th birthday, and he decided for his 50th birthday he wanted to run a marathon. He had never run a marathon before, so he thought that would be kind of a not, you know, good milestone, so he started training. And he was a little, little overweight, a little over fat. And uh, so he wanted to know what was the running pace where he would burn the most fat. Well, of course, I went through this whole lecture with him about it doesn't really matter, but he still wanted to know what running pace did he burn the most fat. I said, okay, so come to the lab. So he came to the applied phys lab where you guys do your, your labs on Friday. Um, I said, okay, what... On the weekends, when you go and do your long run, you know, when you train for a marathon, you've got you know, three, four, five runs during the week, and on the weekend, when you've got some time, you go and you do a longer run. When you do this long run, what's your typical running pace? So he tells me. I was like, okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to set up a test on the treadmill where you're going to run for some period of time at several running intensities below that and several intensities above that, and let's see if we can find out where you're... you're you burn the most fat. So, so he tells me that and we set up this test. 
And as it turns out, his... Um, all right, so here's, here, here we go. Um, we first of all started off at rest. His resting heart rate was 72. His resting RER was about 0.77. So how's that? Is that pretty typical, pretty normal? Pretty close. Um, so that meant at rest he was getting 78% of his, his energy from fat and 22% of his energy from carbohydrate. Okay. So basically we had him then run at a 9 minute and 30 second per mile pace, at a 9 minute per mile pace, at an 8 minute and 30 second uh, per mile pace, and an 8 minute per mile pace. And as you can see right here, as you would expect, his heart rate goes up, right? Okay, so that's pretty typical with each of these intensities. And as we can see with his RER, his RER goes from 0.88 to 0.89 to 0.91 to 0.92, so his RER climbs as his exercise intensity goes up. Uh, as we've seen before, the percentage of energy he burned from fat went up, or went down, I'm sorry, from 40% down to 27%, and the percentage of energy from carbohydrate went up from 60% to 73%. Okay? Now, here was the interesting thing, because we took those figures then and we calculated his absolute uh, energy expenditure, total energy expenditure, and then energy expenditure from fat and carbohydrate. And so basically what we were looking for was, like with the cyclist, what point did he hit the highest absolute fat oxidation before it started to go down? And so at rest it's 1.1, at 9.30 it was uh, 4.7, at 9 minutes per mile 5, then it goes down to 4.4, 4.2. So here is the point at which his highest fat oxidation. And so what we do is we come over here and we find out that was a nine minute per nine minute nine minutes per mile running pace. Okay, was his maximal fat oxidation. Guess what his self-selected, just chosen normal running pace was when he went out and did his long runs? Nine minutes, nine minutes a mile. Okay, that's good. His yeah, and and that's actually pretty common when people will self-select a running pace. That is a long endurance, you know, depending on what your training status is. That might be 5 miles, that might be 10, it might be 15 miles. A long endurance event, people, you know, tend to self-select a pace that is at or fairly close to their maximum fat oxidation rate. Okay? Um, so, that was the pace that he would burn the most fat. Okay? And, and absolute total number of, of, of fat calories. Now, if he would push the pace a little bit faster, okay, here, go to 9 minutes a mile, or uh, 8.30, or even 8.45, his fat percentage would go down some, but his total energy expenditure would go up, and he would probably burn more calories and would have lost more weight, okay? But nonetheless, but this was, it was fine, and he, that's what he, you know, that's what he did his long runs at, at, at 9 minutes a mile, and he successfully completed, he wasn't, looking for any particular time. He was just looking to complete his first marathon, you know, and so it went fine. But that's basically how you do it to try to find somebody's, their specific maximum fat oxidation point, okay? So, now, there was a uh, uh, study done, and this was a good while ago, published 10 or 15 years ago, study done between our department and the nutrition department where they took a, a, a group of female subjects 
And they brought them into the lab and they tested their body composition. So they did, um, let me see if I've got that on here. I don't. So they did, um, they basically did their weight and they did percent body fat. Okay, so this was a group of female subjects. They then randomly divided them into two groups. Uh, one group did low intensity exercise. The other group did high intensity exercise. But what they did was they balanced total energy expenditure. So if you've got a group doing high intensity exercise and a group doing low intensity exercise, how do you balance energy expenditure? Change duration. The group doing the lower intensity activity had to do it for a longer period of time. The group that did higher intensity got to do it for a shorter period of time. But they did it, uh, each of them did that combination so they burned about the same total number of calories. They had them come into the lab and do this training on the treadmill in the lab for 12 weeks. At the end of 12 weeks, they retested their, their body weight and their percent body fat, and guess what happened? Did the high-intensity group lose weight? So high-intensity, yes, they lost weight. Did their percent body fat go down? It did. So their body fat went down. How about the low-intensity group? Did their weight go down? It did. Did their percent body fat go down? Yes, it did. Was there a significant difference in the amount of weight or body fat loss between the two groups? There was not. Okay? The key factor in long-term weight and fat loss is not whether you burn carbohydrate calories or fat calories. The, difference, uh, the, the important factor is total energy expenditure, particularly in relation to amount of energy consumed. Okay? Um, and what I like to tell classes, particularly, you know, because this is a prereq for the fitness assessment and exercise prescription class, um, there are lots of reasons for prescribing exercise at different intensities. And there's lots of reasons for prescribing exercise at lower intensities for people, but burning fat is not one of those reasons. Okay? All right. So this is just graphically what we saw with um, that running speed. So as, run, as running speed goes up, okay, fat goes up, reaches a peak, and then goes down, and carbohydrate just keeps going up. All right, now, what I want you to do is just kind of completely wipe that out of your mind and change to a different idea. And that is duration. Duration. So we're going to run at the same intensity. Okay, we're not going to change intensity. We're going to stay at the same intensity and we're going to run for a long period of time. The body will slightly modify where the fuel source is based on the duration of exercise. Okay? And as you can see from this graph, what happens 
as exercise duration gets longer. Okay, so this is this is running and notice this is this is an hour. Okay, this is two hours. So this is pretty long duration exercise. If you run at the same steady intensity for an hour or two, what tends to happen is there is a modest decrease in carbohydrate oxidation and a modest increase in fat oxidation. Okay? This is generally related to Are carbohydrate stores declining or getting lower the longer and longer and longer you exercise? Okay? And if there are fewer carbohydrate stores available to you, then you will start to metabolize slightly more fat. Okay? So, duration has a completely opposite effect than intensity. Intensity, carbs go up, fat goes down. With duration, carbs go down slightly, fat comes up more. Okay? Um, if we look at, and, and this is not considering that we're taking anything in during exercise, okay? So nothing's, nothing's coming in. So if we look at exercise time or duration, we can see, first of all, muscle glycogen. We're going to depend highly on muscle glycogen. But the longer we go, the more muscle glycogen is depleted. Okay? We want to maintain carbohydrate oxidation. So in order to maintain carbohydrate oxidation, we're going to have to rely more on taking glucose out of the blood. Okay? But eventually, as we'll, we'll see when we get to carbs, uh, problem, well, maybe today, maybe next time. When we rely more heavily on blood glucose, then that's going to cause some issues. The longer the duration of exercise, the body is going to liberate these fatty acids from fat cells, and we're going to start depending more on or on uh, fatty acid oxidation, and probably less on these triglycerides we find in the muscle. Okay, because like the glycogen that's stored in the muscle in a limited amount and so the more we use the, the smaller this gets. Okay? So these are our four areas. We tend to get our carbohydrates from muscle glycogen, blood glucose. For Then for fats we get fatty acids from the blood or we can break down these triglycerides that we find in muscle. Okay? All right. Uh, skip over those. We're going to do those. Let me see if I got everything in fat metabolism I wanted to talk about. Yeah, let me let me go back to fat. Okay. Um, usually, when people are looking at their fat intake, 
or the composition of nutrients in their diet. We talked about how to, how to do protein. And so you want to do protein based on number of grams of protein relative to body weight. So grams of protein times how many kilograms of body weight to give you total grams of protein, right? Um, then for an athlete, you want to do the same thing with carbohydrate. Figure out how many grams of carbohydrate this athlete is going to need. And then essentially you fill in the remainder with fat. Um, we have this... Uh, we have this real fat phobia in this country in terms of fat in our food. We try to get all kinds of different foods that, you know, that are fat-free and all that kind of stuff. And that's, that's mainly because we just eat too much total food. And we, and, and, and we do have a lot of um, common food sources that are high in fat. Um, but we need fat in our diet. Okay? Uh, there are certain fat-soluble vitamins, um, lots of things, that, uh, certain essential fatty acids that we need. So we need fat in our diet. Um, so don't mistake this that we need to, uh, we can meet all of our needs through carbohydrate and protein. So we need fat in the diet. But typically not nearly as much as we usually eat. Um, most public health organizations, you know, refer to this as percentages. Um, most of them want us to be in the range of, uh, you know, probably less than 30%. But in that 25 to 30 percent of our intake, uh, in reality, it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about one gram of fat per kilogram of body weight per day. Okay, so if you get somebody that's you know uh, 150 pounds, it's about 70 kilocalories or 70 kilograms. Um, it's about 70 grams of fat a day. Um, it might need to be relatively high if the person is doing enough exercise that they're expending huge amounts of energy. Okay, um, But basically we want to be in about that range for percentage and if we look at it as an absolute amount about one gram a day. Um, and in terms of athletes, adjusting the amount of fat in the diet is probably the most uh, flexible one if the person needs to uh, reduce body fat, you know, that's probably the one that we can uh, reduce the intake of because we want to make sure they get an adequate amount of protein, adequate amount of carbohydrate. Um, okay. So just some... Yeah, so that's kind of the fat phobia thing. All right. Oh, well, here's, here, here's a, a, a good slide on... Um, if we don't get enough fat in the diet, um, we may not replace those intramuscular fat stores. Um, we may not be able to adequately manufacture sex-related hormones. That um, actually may cause really low-fat diets. Actually, for a lot of people, cause a decline in the good cholesterol, which is the HDL or high-density lipoprotein, um, and it also may adversely affect fat-soluble uh, vitamin intake. So, don't don't mistake me by thinking that. We need to drastically eliminate fat from the body, from the diet. Okay, so that's that's fat. I tell you what, we'll do carbs on uh, Tuesday and uh, caffeine on Thursday, and we'll we'll be right on schedule for our exam. So, uh, little little bit of a bonus today, a little bit of time bonus. You you use it wisely and get out and vote.